The Coram Deo Church community is a missional church rooted in historic, biblical Christianity and committed to cultural engagement. We hope the message you are about to hear spurs you to deeper reflection on the gospel of Jesus Christ. Thanks for listening. This morning's scripture reading is Acts chapter 19. And it happened that while Apollos was at Corinth, Paul passed through the inland country and came to Ephesus. There he found some disciples, and he said to them, Did you receive the Holy Spirit when you believed? And they said, No, we have not even heard that there is a Holy Spirit. And he said, Into what then were you baptized? They said, Into John's baptism. And Paul said, John baptized with the baptism of repentance, telling the people to believe in the one who was to come after him, that is, Jesus. On hearing this, they were baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. And when Paul had laid his hands on them, the Holy Spirit came on them, and they began speaking in tongues and prophesying. There were about 12 men in all. And he entered the synagogue and for three months spoke boldly, reasoning and persuading them about the kingdom of God. But when some became stubborn and continued in unbelief, speaking evil of the way before the congregation, he withdrew from them and took the disciples with him, reasoning daily in the hall of Tyrannus. This continued for two years so that all the residents of Asia heard the word of the Lord, both Jews and Greeks. And God was doing extraordinary miracles by the hands of Paul, so that even handkerchiefs or aprons that had touched his skin were carried away to the sick, and their diseases left them, and the evil spirits came out of them. Then some of the itinerant Jewish exorcists undertook to invoke the name of the Lord Jesus over those who had evil spirits, saying, I adjure you by the Jesus whom Paul proclaims. Seven sons of a Jewish high priest named Siva were doing this. But the evil spirit answered them, Jesus I know, and Paul I recognize, but who are you? And the man in whom was the evil spirit leaped on them, mastered all of them, and overpowered them, so that they fled out of that house naked and wounded. And this became known to all the residents of Ephesus, both Jews and Greeks. And fear fell upon them all. The name of the Lord Jesus was extolled. Also, many of those who were now believers came confessing and divulging their practices. And a number of those who had practiced magic arts brought their books together and burned them in the sight of all. And they counted the value of them and found it came to 50,000 pieces of silver. So the word of the Lord continued to increase and prevail mightily. Now, after these events, Paul resolved in the spirit to pass through Macedonia and Achaia and go to Jerusalem, saying, after I have been there, I must also see Rome. And having sent into Macedonia two of his helpers, Timothy and Erastus, he himself stayed in Asia for a while. 
about that time, there arose no little disturbance concerning the way. For a man named Demetrius, a silversmith, who made silver shrines of Artemis, brought no little business to the craftsmen. These he gathered together with the workmen in similar trades and said, Men, you know that from this business we have our wealth. And you see and hear that not only in Ephesus, but in almost all of Asia, this Paul has persuaded and turned away a great many people, saying that gods made with hands are not gods. And there is danger, not only that this trade of ours may come into disrepute, but also that the temple of the great goddess Artemis may be counted as nothing, and that she may even be deposed from her magnificence, she whom all Asia in the world worship. When they heard this, they were enraged and were crying out, Great is Artemis of the Ephesians! So the city was filled with the confusion, and they rushed together into the theater, dragging with them Gaius and Aristarchus, Macedonians who were Paul's companions in travel. But when Paul wished to go in among the crowd, the disciples would not let him. And even some of the Asiarchs, who were friends of his, sent to him and were urging him not to venture into the theater. Now some cried out one thing, some another, for the assembly was in confusion, and most of them did not know why they had come together. Some of the crowd prompted Alexander, whom the Jews had put forward. And Alexander, motioning with his hand, wanted to make a defense to the crowd. But when they recognized that he was a Jew, for about two hours they all cried out with one voice, Great is Artemis of the Ephesians! And when the town clerk had quieted the crowd, he said, Men of Ephesus, who is there who does not know that the city of the Ephesians is temple keeper of the great Artemis and of the sacred stone that fell from the sky? Seeing then that these things cannot be denied, you ought to be quiet and do nothing rash. For you have brought these men here who are neither sacrilegious nor blasphemers of our goddess. If therefore Demetrius and the craftsmen with him have a complaint against anyone, the courts are open and there are proconsuls. Let them bring charges against one another." But if you seek anything further, it shall be settled in the regular assembly. For we really are in danger of being charged with rioting today, since there is no cause that we can give to justify this commotion. And when he had said these things, he dismissed the assembly. The word of God for the people of God. If you ever wonder if we're having church, the answer is yes, usually. Um, I understand there's churches that canceled today and, you know, there's, sometimes we do that. I also want you to know that on my television last night were 60,000 human beings in Kansas City <laughs> in 10 degrees below zero at an NFL playoff game. So I just think like, you know what, if they can do that outdoors, we can probably gather and worship Jesus indoors and, you know, we're probably going to do that uh, unless there's, you know, reasons we can't. So uh, we're, we're going to gather here and I'm glad that you're here this morning. And uh, even if you're not here, if you're watching online later, um, God bless you. We're glad to have you joining us in that way. And this morning we're beginning a new series in the book of Ephesians. And so I want to take a few minutes to set that up 
um, and tell you what we're doing and why we're doing it. Um, I like to remind you of this. My longing for everybody in this room and everybody I come in contact with is I want you to be a follower of Jesus Christ. And as Justin said, I want you to weigh what that means. I want you to wrestle with and understand what does it mean to be a follower of Jesus? And what I like to remind people of, because I feel like as we as Americans consider a question like that, what would it mean for me to be a follower of Jesus? We often think subjectively, like what would that bring into my life? Would that add meaning? Would it add value? Would it add uh, something I don't have? Those are important questions. There are good subjective reasons to be a Christian. But primarily, the gospel of Jesus Christ is a message about history. It's a statement about what actually happened and about what God is up to in the world. It's a statement about reality, a statement about what is. In other words, the message of Christianity is that a man named Jesus Christ lived and died and rose from the dead and that those events took place in real history and that as a result of that, now we're living in the wake of that and that we ought to live our lives in response to that. And so what that means is if those things didn't actually happen, if that history isn't true, let's go to the Chiefs game, right? Why are we here? If that history is true, it changes things. And not only is that history important, but also the fact that the message of the gospel is really a message about what is. It's a, message, it's a statement about what reality is. Like, what kind of world are we actually living in? Are we living in a world where there is a God who has intervened in time and space and history? Or are we not living in that world? And so really for every one of us, the response we have to the message of Jesus has to do with what we consider to be true and real. What kind of world do we think we are living in? What story do we think makes up reality and history? And that's the idea behind the theme of this series, the renewal of everything in Jesus. Because what we're trying to do is help you see that the message of Jesus is not just something personally meaningful to you, but it is a message about what God is up to in the world. And what God is up to is renewing everything in creation, in and through the Lord Jesus Christ. And that message came to a specific city in the first century called Ephesus, and it had a specific effect on some real human beings who lived there, and a church was started there, and then we're reading a letter written by the Apostle Paul to those people in that place in that time. So, just like you, these are real human beings living in a real place. I don't know if it ever got to negative 21 degrees there, but they're real human beings. Like they're living life just like you are. And they're wrestling with what is true, what is real, what should I do with my life? Who is Jesus and what does it mean to respond to his life and death? That's what we're talking about as we engage this book, the New Testament letter to the Ephesians. So we're going to talk about the renewal of everything in Jesus. And as we talk about that theme over the course of the next few months, and as we consider this book in scripture, I want to sort of remind you of what we mean. We use the phrase, the gospel around here a lot. You heard Justin mention, we believe the gospel changes everything. It should change every one of us and change our lives, change our stories. But I want to use different shorthand or maybe different longhand this morning. Instead of talking about just the gospel, I'm going to refer to the gospel as what God has done in Jesus and what God is doing through his spirit. Because Ephesians is a very Trinitarian letter. 
It's going to talk about the grace of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. It's going to talk about what God is doing as Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And so I'm going to talk about the gospel this morning as what God has done in Jesus and what God is doing through the Spirit. The importance there is that what God has done in Jesus is the historical reality, the fact that Jesus really lived and really died and really rose from the dead. And then as a result of that historical reality, God is doing something right now through his spirit. He's gathering a people for himself. So we're going to talk about what God has done in Jesus and what he is doing through the spirit. That changes things, changes everything. That's what happened in Ephesus in the first century when the Apostle Paul came and preached this message in this town, told them about what God had done in Jesus and what God is right now doing through the Spirit. That changed things. And that's the story we're going to look at this morning. And so you probably heard, could tell from the scripture reading, rather than starting in the book of Ephesians, we're going to start in Acts chapter 19. And we're going to sort of catch the origin story of this church. Where did this church come from? Who are these people? How did this thing get started? And that story is preserved for us in the book of Acts chapter 19. So I want to invite you to turn there if you're not there already. And here's the outline this morning. What God has done in Jesus and is doing through the Spirit changes people, it changes practices, it changes paradigms, and it changes places. That's what we see in Acts 19. And so that'll be sort of the four points I want to use to guide us through this text this morning. What God has done in Jesus and is doing through the Spirit changes, first of all, changes people. So let's meet the people that it changed. Acts chapter 19, verse 1. And it happened that while Apollos was at Corinth, Paul passed through the inland country and came to Ephesus. There he found some disciples. Now let's get our bearings. It says he came to Ephesus and I want you to know where that is. So this is a map of the Mediterranean. That little blue dot in the middle is the ruins of the city of Ephesus. It's in what is now Western Turkey, or what was called back then Asia Minor. And so you can see sort of where it sits in relation to the geography of this part of the world. Ephesus at this time was the third largest city in the Roman Empire, and really sort of a, a capital city for this part of the region. It wasn't an official capital, but it had sort of that you know, there's a reason why when people want to go to an NFL game, they go to Kansas City. No knock on Omaha, but other places are a little bigger and have a little more of the sort of cultural fabric of things that drive a region, right? And that's the kind of place Ephesus was. Here's what John Stott says about Ephesus. All the roads of Asia converged on Ephesus, and all the inhabitants of Asia visited Ephesus from time to time to buy or sell, visit a relative, frequent the baths, attend the games in the stadium, watch a drama in the theater, or worship the goddess. You see, there's, there's draws that bring people to Ephesus. It's the theater, it's the stadium, it's the, the uh, goddess Artemis and her temple. It might be a relative, it might be commerce. There's a lot of things that drew people to Ephesus, but this is a major city in the province of Asia. So what happens here is gonna affect the whole region. And what you're gonna to need to know about the book of Ephesus is it is written to the churches in this whole region. It's to the people in Ephesus, but also there's lots of churches in the surrounding areas. What happens in Ephesus is gonna have effect in all of Asia. So verse two, he, Paul, said to these people that he met, did you receive the Holy Spirit when you believed? And they said, no, we've not even heard that there is a Holy Spirit. And notice what Paul says next. And he said, into what then were you baptized? 
And they said, into John's baptism. So the fact that they said, we don't even know if there is such a thing as the Holy Spirit, clues Paul in like, hmm, weird. Because if you were Christians, you should know that. Right? So this is your clue that he, he's, these people he's meeting, though it uses the word disciples in the text, they're disciples of John the Baptist. They're not disciples of Jesus. These are unconverted people who have not yet responded to the message of the gospel. They're not yet Christians. They have been baptized by John the Baptist, but that is not Christian baptism. It's a different thing. Notice verse 4, Paul clarifies. Paul said, John baptized with the baptism of repentance, telling the people to believe in one who was to come after him, that is Jesus. On hearing this, verse 5, they were baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. Okay, so this is now their conversion moment. They're like, oh, yeah, that's right. John was preparing us for one who was to come. Paul announces to them that Jesus is the one who was to come. They hear that and believe and are baptized in the name of Jesus. Verse 6, and when Paul had laid his hands on them, the Holy Spirit came on them. And they began speaking in tongues and prophesying. There were about 12 men in all. Now, in the book of Acts, as you see the gospel move from Jewish territory to Gentile territory, two things always happen. The progress of the gospel, new people being incorporated into the church, is always accompanied by the laying on of hands from an apostle, signifying that this has the, the commendation of the apostles, and therefore of Jesus himself. And second, you always see the special manifestation of the Holy Spirit, things like speaking in tongues and prophesying as a visible manifestation to the people that the Spirit of God is really at work here. So, the, the outline of the book of Acts, if you remember Acts 1.8, when Jesus is with his disciples, says, you're going to be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in Judea and in Samaria and to the ends of the earth. And that's the flow of the book. It starts in Jerusalem, it moves to Judea, it moves to Samaria, and then it moves to the Gentile regions to the end of the earth. And in those last two movements to Samaria and to the Gentiles, there's these moments where it's attested with the laying on of hands of the apostles and the specific manifestation of the Spirit. Here's what John Stott says. The norm of Christian experience is a cluster of four things. Repentance, faith in Jesus, water baptism, and the gift of the Spirit. The laying on of apostolic hands, together with tongue-speaking and prophesying, were special to Ephesus and Samaria in order to demonstrate visibly and publicly that particular groups were incorporated into Christ by the Spirit. The New, Testament, the New Testament does not universalize them. There are no Samaritans or disciples of John the Baptist left in the world today. His point is these things are unique to this moment in redemptive history. This doesn't happen today. This, this isn't universalized in the teaching of the New Testament. This is a unique moment in redemptive history. And what it shows us is that what God has done in Jesus and what God is doing through the Spirit changes people. Like these 12 disciples of John the Baptist come into contact with Paul and he proclaims to them the message of Jesus and they are baptized and that changes them. And so my question to you is, has that message changed you? Perhaps your experience is similar to these disciples of John the Baptist. I mean, think about who these people are. These are religious people. These are morally serious people. These are earnest people. They, they, they want to repent of their sins. And yet they haven't believed in the Lord Jesus and received the Holy Spirit. 
And it's quite possible that you might be here today and your story is similar. You're a, a morally serious person. You're a religiously minded person. You wouldn't call yourself an atheist or a non-Christian, and yet you haven't been changed by what God has done in Jesus and by what God is doing in the Spirit. And I want to invite you to the same conversion these people experience in this text, to come to Jesus, to be changed by him, to be baptized in his name. In fact, we could even do that this morning if you want. We'll do another one on Easter. What God has done and is doing through the Spirit changes people. And that's what it means to be a Christian. It means to be changed by that message and by the Spirit of God. So the first thing we see is how, what gets started in Ephesus? What happens in Ephesus? Why are we reading a letter to this city? We're reading a letter written to a church in Ephesus because what, what happened first is some people were changed by the grace of God through the message of what God has done in Jesus and what God is doing through the Spirit. But not only do these people change, their practices change. This is interesting. Look at verse 11. Before we go there, just acknowledge that one of the critiques of Christianity that we should all say, yep, it has merit and weight. One of the critiques of Christianity is, listen, I know a lot of people who say they're Christians and just nothing's different about them. Like they say they're Christian, but that doesn't mean anything. There's no difference in their life. That's a real critique. And what we see here is that one of the things that happens in these people is not just are they baptized and then changed by the message, but their practices are changed. Look at verse 11. God was doing extraordinary miracles by the hand of Paul so that even handkerchiefs or aprons that had touched his skin were carried away to the sick and their diseases left them and the evil spirits came out of them. Remember again, Paul is an apostle and some of the things going on here are unique or to say it another way, if you're ever watching cable TV late at night, and a person says, hey, if you send me 100 bucks, I'll send you this prayer handkerchief and it will heal you. Just imagine that's not a good application of Acts 19, okay? So this does happen. Notice the, the text calls it extraordinary miracles. It doesn't show up on cable TV because it's extraordinary. Then some of the itinerant Jewish exorcists undertook to invoke the name of the Lord Jesus over those who had evil spirits, saying, I adjure you by the Jesus whom Paul proclaims. Seven sons of a Jewish high priest named Sceva were doing this. Now, catch this. So these seven guys don't believe in the Lord Jesus themselves. They just want to use his name to get results. Like, they're not disciples of Jesus. In fact, what they say is not even in the name of Jesus. It's like, I adjure you by that guy, Jesus, whom Paul keeps talking about. Okay, so if you're familiar with the Old Testament, there's a command in there that we call the third commandment. You shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain. It's what these people are doing. They're just grabbing Jesus' name to try to use it for the benefit of their ministry. Doesn't work out well. Verse 15, but the evil spirit answered them, Jesus I know, and Paul I recognize, but who are you? It's not going to go well for them. And the man in whom was the evil spirit leaped on them, mastered all of them, and overpowered them so that they fled out of that house naked and wounded. They lost a fight that day. And this became known to all the residents of Ephesus, both Jews and Greeks, and fear fell upon them all, and the name of the Lord Jesus was extolled. Here's what you need to understand about Ephesus. Ephesus is a highly spiritual place. 
The people of Ephesus were into magic. They were into the occult. They were into spells. They were very into spiritual powers and spiritual experiences. And so what happens in this moment is the people of Ephesus realize this Jesus is not someone to be trifled with. Like the spiritual powers know who Jesus is. The name of Jesus isn't just a mantra you can use in any way you want. This Jesus has power in the spiritual realm. Again, this is part of the message of the gospel being verified in this community where people are very into spiritual practices. So as a result of this, as a result of these guys getting beat up and this evil spirit going, yeah, I know who Jesus is. I know who Paul is. Not sure who you guys are. Verse 18 Many of those who were now believers came confessing and divulging their practices. There's our word. And a number of those who had practiced magic arts brought their books together and burned them in the sight of all. And they counted the value of them and found it came to 50,000 pieces of silver. So the word of the Lord continued to increase and prevail mightily. These people have come to faith in Jesus out of a pagan background and their lives still reflect some of their old practices as all of our lives do when we first come to Jesus. Like the whole progress of discipleship is bringing our lives into conformity with what we profess and with what Jesus desires for us. And so of course, these people come to faith, they've still got practices that are from their old life. And so they come and confess and divulge their practices and they bring their magic arts books and burn them together. And I realize that fundamentalist Christianity has done some weird things with this verse. Like maybe you grew up in a youth group where everybody brought their Metallica CDs and like burned them all in a big bonfire. That really does happen. If you haven't, if you didn't grow up in that youth group, talk to someone who did. It's, these things happen. I'm just going to go on record and say I'm not sure that's the best application of what's happening here. Okay, maybe you need to be done with certain kinds of music. I don't know, but don't take this and blanket apply it. But here, here's what I think as I, as I read this. I wonder if in our day, we actually minimize the importance of renunciation. Of making a clean break with the past. Spiritual forces are real. Demonic powers are real. These people have been involved in dark spiritual practices. And in this moment, what they're doing is they're decisively renouncing those practices. They're saying, hey, we're done with this. This is a moment of decision. What God has done in Jesus and is doing through the Spirit changes their practices. They realize, hey, we can't stay involved in the stuff we used to be involved in. And we, we need a clean break with that. We need to leave that behind. We need to throw it on the bonfire. And we need to move in a new direction. This is an expression of repentance and change. Has the message of the gospel changed your practices? Here's a really good question to ask. What have you stopped doing because you follow Jesus? What have you started doing because you follow Jesus? One of my concerns for us as Americans is that 
our understanding of the gospel has become so intellectual that we just think in terms of like, well, I believe certain things about Jesus. And I just want to remind you, yes, and also Christians historically throughout the centuries have practiced certain things. We pray, we read scripture, we gather together for encouragement, we come to the Lord's table, we hear the preaching of the word. These are things that Christians do. Part of how you should be able to, part of how people should be able to tell you're a Christian is by the things you practice and the things you have given up practicing. And I want you to notice there's a communal aspect to this. It says, they brought their books together and burned them in the sight of all. Why, why would they do that? Why have this big communal group bonfire? I think because it creates actual momentum and real accountability, doesn't it? Like if you want to be done with something, if you want to leave something in the past, go on the record with it. Like let all your friends know, hey, I'm done with this. This is in the past. I'm heading in a new direction. What that does is two things. One, it brings people into the know of what journey you're on and how they can walk with you and encourage you. And it helps you drive a stake in the ground and say, this is the moment. I'm leaving this in the past. The problem for many of us is that we care a lot about our image. We care about how people think we are. And so we generally want to struggle with sin in private and kind of get it all sorted out and then present the best version of ourselves to the public. That just doesn't work very well. Like, it's, there's no power for change there. And there's no real demonstration of the need for one another. If I can deal with all my sin in private and I only need you all to be impressed with the version of me that comes to talk about it, why do I need you? You're just an audience for my little show. But if I actually need your help in growing in grace and overcoming sin and walking with Jesus, well, that's a whole different kind of need for community, isn't it? Like we need one another. That's what this text is telling us. What God has doing in Jesus and is doing through the Spirit changes practices. It changes their practices. It needs to change some of our practices. Third, it changes paradigms. A paradigm is just a way of seeing, a way of understanding reality, a set of assumptions about what's true and what matters. In the paradigm of paganism, no one was devoted to a singular God. You've never heard of a Zeusian. There's no such thing. That's not how paganism worked. In fact, the way the Romans conquered the world was to incorporate all the local deities of various peoples into their pantheon. So like as the Roman legions went forward and conquered new territories and they might meet a group of people and they're like, well, here we worship Mithras. The Romans would be like, cool, we'll just put Mithras into our list of gods. Welcome, Mithras. When we're in this territory, guess what we do? We make sacrifices to Mithras. So in Ephesus, the local goddess that everybody was into was Artemis. So man, when you went to Ephesus, guess what you did? Guess what you did? You showed up at the temple and honored the goddess Artemis because that's how paganism worked. Pick up the story with me in verse 23. This is a great editorial introduction. About that time, there arose no little disturbance concerning the way. In other words, about that time, things got interesting in Ephesus. For a man named Demetrius, a silversmith who made silver shrines of Artemis, brought no little business to the craftsmen. These he gathered together, 
with workmen in similar trades and said, man, you know that from this business we have our wealth. Hey, guys, this pays the bills. This Artemis gig pays the bills. Verse 26, and you see and hear that not only in Ephesus, but in almost all of Asia, this Paul has persuaded and turned away a great many people, saying that gods made with hands are not gods. What Demetrius is identifying here that's very significant is that Christianity says something very distinct about what God is like. This Paul, he says, says that gods made with hands aren't even real gods. Like that's a whole different statement about what a God is. There's a disagreement between the pagans and the Christians about the nature of deity. What is a God? Here's how Rodney Stark says it. Almost everywhere on earth, the gods were thought to be many and undependable. Aside from having some magical powers, the gods had normal human concerns and shortcomings. They ate, drank, loved, envied, fornicated, cheated, lied, and took little interest in human affairs. If you've ever read yourself some Greek mythology or some Roman mythology, you're like, yeah, that's pretty square with what I've read. That was the pagan paradigm. That's how people in Ephesus and people everywhere thought about the gods. So the idea that there is one God who is the creator of everything and the idea that that God is good, holy, transcendent, simple, omniscient, glorious, that's a whole new thing. That's a whole new understanding of who God is, and that's a radical departure from paganism. It's something completely different in the history of the world. And what's funny is we're sitting here in the year 2024, and we're reading about what went on in Ephesus, and every time I tell you about paganism and about gods that envied and you know ate and drank, you're like, well, that's weird. Actually, you're weird. Like the idea that the gods aren't like that, the only reason you think that way is because of the influence of Christianity. There were only two monotheistic groups in the entire world at this point, the Jews and the Zoroastrians, and they were both very, very small populations. These Christians who came and said, oh, Jesus is God, and by the way, he's the creator of everything that is, and we should offer only him our, that's just like mind-blowing. No one had ever heard of that before. And look at what happens in verse 27. Demetrius is still giving his speech. He says, and there is danger. Isn't that a strange thing to say? There's danger. Not only this trade of ours may come into disrepute, but also the temple of the great goddess Artemis may be counted as nothing and blah, blah, blah. The worship of Jesus Christ, friends, is dangerous. It's a danger to all false gods and all systems built on false worship. Demetrius knows the worship of Jesus Christ has economic implications. Like if revival breaks out in Ephesus and a bunch of people start worshiping Jesus, Demetrius is gonna have to find new employment. He's not sure that's a good thing, but actually that's a great thing. 
And the same is true in Omaha, Nebraska. If revival breaks out here and tons of people become Christians in our city, some people are going to be out of work. Like strip clubs are, strip clubs are closing. Porn shops are closing. Casinos are probably closing. Payday lenders might be closing. There's a lot of companies in our city that if revival breaks out and people start living according to the Bible, they're like, well, going to need to find new work. Praise the Lord. That's what we want to happen. The worship of Jesus is dangerous and it is a threat to a capitalism that is built on idolatry. Because what God has done in Jesus and is doing through the Spirit changes paradigms. It's a whole new way of seeing. Once you embrace Jesus, you can't see the world the same way. You begin to see with his eyes. You begin to understand the world through his word. And it changes how you see. Like the world looks different. Because the gospel changes your paradigm. That's what's happening. And Demetrius is realizing, man, you know what? Paul's preaching this gospel and a lot of people are starting to see the world differently and they're coming to the conclusion these gods aren't actually gods. And man, if that continues, Ephesus' economy is going to be in shambles, or at least that's what he says. And of course, anytime people's livelihood is threatened, you get really angry responses. That's what happens here. So all these people come together. The craftsmen, the silversmiths, they get all up in arms and they get outraged. And so this little riot begins in the city of Ephesus. And the text tells us people are enraged and they're all crying out, no, Artemis is awesome. And they're coming to the theater. No one really knows why they're there. They're all yelling at each other. It's a mob scene. It's chaos. And they won't even let certain people talk. Finally, this guy, the town clerk, shows up. This is the unsung hero of the story. This is a really good testament to leadership of this person who's like nameless and we don't even know who he is. But notice verse 35. And when the town clerk had quieted the crowd, that's a great feat in, in itself. He said, men of Ephesus, who is there who does not know that the city of the Ephesians is temple keeper of the great Artemis and of the sacred stone that fell from the sky? Probably there was a meteorite that had landed near Ephesus and, that's, and they received that as like a, a sign from the gods. And so that's what this is referring to. Seeing then that these things cannot be denied, you ought to be quiet and do nothing rash. For you've brought these men here who are neither sacrilegious nor blasphemers of our goddess. If therefore Demetrius and the craftsmen with him have a complaint against anyone, the courts are open and there are proconsuls. Let them bring charges against one another. But if you seek anything further, it shall be settled in the regular assembly, for we really are in danger of being charged with rioting today, since there's no cause that we can give to justify this commotion. And when he had said these things, he dismissed the assembly. End of chapter. And we just turn to chapter 20. This guy just shuts down the mob, says, hey, you know what? If you, if you guys have an issue, you can go to the courts, go to the city council meeting. There's, there's channels for these things. Let's not get charged with rioting. But I want you to notice what he says in verse 35, the town clerk. Men of Ephesus, who is there who does not know that the city of the Ephesians is temple keeper of the great Artemis? Now, if you've ever taken a public speaking course, you know that this is a part of rhetoric is knowing how to ask a rhetorical question, right? And what is a rhetorical question? It's a question that everybody knows the answer to. You're not asking it because you want a response. You're asking it because you're going to persuade them because they're all going to nod and go, yeah, that's a good point. 
When the town clerk says, who is there who does not know that the city of the Ephesians is the temple keeper of the great Artemis? That's a rhetorical question. He's saying, of course, everybody knows that. Literally the whole world, y'all, knows that Ephesians is the temple keeper of the great Artemis. He's asking this because the whole world is aware that that's the case. Let me ask you a question. Did you know that? Like if I were to ask you on the way in here, hey, you know what? Hey, glad you got here from the parking lot. Sorry, it was a little slippery. What do you know about the city of Ephesus? Would you have been like, you know what? Temple of Artemis, man. <laughs> Probably not. The Temple of Artemis is still there. It's in ruins. You can go visit it. In fact, there's a great tourism industry in Turkey around early Christian sites where you can go see the ruins of the theater and of the Temple of Artemis and of all kinds of things in Ephesus. And I bet if you asked an average person on the street, what do you know about the city of the Ephesians? Almost no one would mention Artemis. Do you know why? Because no one has worshipped Artemis in Ephesus or anywhere else for centuries. Do you know what most people would probably say if you asked them, what do you know about the city of the Ephesians? Nothing, but isn't there a book in the Bible called Ephesians? That's what a lot of people would say. Because if they've ever looked at a table of contents, you see Ephesians, you're like, I don't know what that is, but you, know, you remember, oh, that's in the Bible somewhere. What I'm telling you is that 2,000 years later, Ephesus is not known as the home of Artemis, but as the launching pad of Christianity. The question the town clerk asked doesn't even make sense to any of you because that's not what the place Ephesus is known for. The place Ephesus is known as a place where the apostle Paul preached the gospel, planted a church, and then wrote a letter that we've been reading ever since. What God has done in Jesus and is doing through the spirit changed this place. You know it for something different than what the ancient world knew it for. So let's just ask this question. Hey, what if the message of Jesus changed this place? Like changed our city, our neighborhoods. Then what would happen? I've had to travel to the East Coast a fair amount in the last 12 months. I've been in New York City a couple times and I'm being in Philadelphia in a few weeks from now. And I can confirm for you that East Coast people are totally elitist. Sorry if you're from there. It's okay. I talked to some people after the first service. like, yeah, it's actually kind of true what you said. Um, in other words, when I say I'm from Omaha, when I meet somebody in New York or Philly, and I'm like, yeah, they're like, where are you from? And I'm like, Omaha. I can see their face go blank <laughs> because they're literally like, that's somewhere between here and California. I don't know where. And so what I start doing is I start thinking of things that they might recognize. Like I say, you know, it's kind of near Kansas City, Chicago, Denver. Like I'm trying to give them just geographical reference points to try to, you know, do some work. And so what I've tried to do in those conversations is just say, what are like three or four things that most people know Omaha for? And I've landed on four of them that I can test and verify people on the East Coast know these things about Omaha. Number one, College World Series. Because if they're a sports fan, they're aware, they've watched that, okay? Number two, Warren Buffett, because capitalism, right? And because we all like rich people. Number three, Connor Oberst and Saddle Creek Records, because if they're indie rockers, they're like, oh yeah, yeah, you guys had a cool music scene a while ago. And then <laughs> number four, the audible that Peyton Manning used a lot. Like, oh yeah, Omaha, 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 that's a Peyton Manning thing. Maybe the zoo, maybe, there, maybe there's a few other things, but those four, I can tell you, that's what people know Omaha for, okay? 
Here's my question to you. What if decades from now, Omaha was known for different things? Like what if decades from now, when you mention the city of Omaha, people are like, oh yeah, that's where the third great awakening started. Like I know that place because I've heard that God did some stuff there and I know a bunch of Christians who came from that place. What happened in Ephesus started with a dozen people. And you're about to read about it for the next four months. By 100 AD, by the time the New Testament was sort of all written, estimates say there were only seven to 10,000 Christians in the entire Roman Empire. All the cities, all the towns, all the people, seven to 10,000 Christians by 100 AD. We have 7,000 toddlers in our nursery. That's not that many people. <laughs> not that many people. By 300 AD, however, those 7,000 Christians had turned into 6 million, 10% of the population of the Roman Empire in 200 years. And do you know how that happened? One human being at a time. This same thing that happened in Ephesus continued to happen as people encountered the message of what God has done in Jesus and what he is doing in the Spirit, and that continued to change people. And a few hundred years later, 10% of the Roman Empire was Christians. And now I talk about paganism and I have to give you categories because you don't even make sense of that world. Why? Because this message has changed the world you live in. The renewal of everything in Jesus goes forward one human being at a time. One baptism at a time. One gospel community multiplication at a time. One church plant at a time. One city at a time. We've been reading today about what God did in Ephesus around 65 AD. But he hasn't put us in Ephesus. You're here today because he's put you in Omaha, Nebraska, and not in 65 AD, but in 2024 AD. What I want you to see is that the same God is still doing the same things in the world through his spirit because of what he has done in Jesus. That's still happening, and so your job and my job is to read this text and observe what God did in Ephesus and thank him for it and celebrate it and then to ask, what might he want to do here? What might he want to do through me? What might he want to do through us? What might he want to do in our day to keep this story moving forward until everything is ultimately renewed in Jesus? That's our job, is to find our place in the story. So I hope as we study the book of Ephesians for the next 12 weeks or so, I hope you'll be challenged. I hope you'll be encouraged. I hope you'll be spurred to prayer and hope and faith and longing. But I hope most of all that the question you'll keep coming back to is, what does the same God want to do through the same gospel now? Let's close in prayer. Holy Spirit, come, dwell here this morning, move in us this morning. We don't want to be people who just read about what you've done somewhere else. 
We want to be a people who carry forward your purposes now. So would you grip us with the news of what you have done in Jesus and with what you are doing through the Spirit. Spirit, even this morning, we pray that you would awaken our hearts, draw us to deeper faith and trust in you, give us a new vision for what you want to do in the world through us. Help us remember that these people we're reading about are just human beings like we are, who believed the message of what you had done in Jesus and who were changed by your Holy Spirit. So help us this morning believe your word, embrace its truthfulness, and be transformed and changed by your presence. We pray that you would be glorified as you come and work among us and in us and through us. In Jesus' name, amen.